Hello and welcome to episode number nine of the awesome Algo podcast. Today's guest is Farzan Akhtar. He is a host of Blockchain and Beyond. And today we would like to cover his experience maintaining that podcast and meeting different guests in the Web3 ecosystem. And Akhtar relatively recently started his journey towards the Algorand blockchain. And I believe he has a very interesting take and experience on comparing Algorand to other chains, given his work in the blockchain and beyond. And as always, I did my due diligence to prepare. In this case, it wasn't necessarily a software project, but I gave a listen to a set of episodes by Farzan. And uh, once again, the links to the podcast are going to be provided in the episode description. And I highly recommend checking his podcast out. In contrast to Awesome Algo, the limit in regards to guests is not very specific to Algorand blockchain. So there's a really large variety of different people in the Web3 ecosystem. So if you want to get a higher picture and a higher overview in regards to other chains and general ecosystem regarding Web3, I think that is a great starting point for you to listen to. And with that, I will give the word to Farzan. We will start with a little biography section. So for the guests and listeners out there, Farzan, the stage is yours. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. And I guess we could start with your academic background and first introduction to engineering. Yeah, perfect. So thank you so much for that introduction. That was probably the best introduction of myself I've ever heard. So thank you for that. So yeah, as mentioned, my name is Farzan. I'm oh, sorry, my mind has just gone blank. <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm just gonna start that bit again. No worries. <laughs> One second. Okay, cool. So thank you, Al, for that introduction. That was probably the best introduction of myself I've ever heard. So I guess I can delve into a bit of my background. So I have a master's in computer science with cybersecurity. I graduated with my master's about a year and a half ago. And before that, my focus was in computer science, which was my bachelor's or my under undergraduate degree. What kind of drove me to choose computer science was, I would say it's a long history of a lot of things. So I grew up in a family where tech was at the forefront. My dad has always worked in IT. He's worked in IT for the past 30 to 40 years. He's had a big interest in technology, in video games and consoles. So I was raised surrounded by these things. I, by the time I was six, seven, eight, I would know how to burn a CD or how to let you know, like what a floppy disk was and how to use it, how to sort out the consoles on my own, plug them in. So I think that sort of background kind of led me towards the interest in, in computer science, how computers work. And I think seeing has become a bit more involved in our life as we grow up. I remember the days of, of dial-up and how things have changed since then. And I think it was just something that, that just made sense to me. I was able to understand how coding would work, how computers work. At that point, it was at a very high level, but it was something that I wanted to explore more into. So that kind of drove me to pick up computer science and computer engineering as a result. If I look back, my first programming language was... My first GUI-based programming language was probably a tool called Scratch, which is like a drag and drop programming tool, which they teach you in school to get you familiar with like pseudocode. And then my first actual programming language was Python. And it's, I want to say Python is quite a common choice for people beginning in, in programming. 
And I will also echo the same sentiment. It was, for me at the time, quite easy to pick up. There's no complicated syntax. The most complicated thing is making sure you get your indentations right. And that's about it. So for me, it was that sort of introduction where I could see how I could write a script. I could make a script, read from a CSV or write to it. And it was, it just blew my mind at that point that I can do all of these things automated. I don't need to do it manually. There's so much opportunity there. And so that's a bit about my brief background. And now moving on to, I would say, blockchain is... I came across Bitcoin when I was, I would say, 15, 16, 17, around, around that age. I read in, in quotation marks. I read the white paper. I didn't understand most of it. I didn't understand what hashing was, what Merkle trees were. So I just, just went with it. I looked into it a little bit. I didn't really have money to want I would put in it, or I was a bit scared because the articles I would read were about people on the dark web selling illicit goods. So I was a bit scared of getting involved with that. It didn't, it's not something that I followed through with, but then through through college and university, I started to discover more about the technology. And that's when I wanted to look at more of the real world applications and where can this technology be used? How is it currently being used? And also understanding the evolution of the technology. Bitcoin was one of the first I'll say more widely adopted blockchains followed by Ethereum. And now we have a whole host of cryptocurrencies and blockchains. And each one has developed on on the previous. It brings a whole new set of tools and capabilities and functionalities. And that was really what drove me to look more into blockchain and the the web free space as an extension. I see, I see. And just to correct myself when i say brief or short it doesn't necessarily imply that you need to condense the information you have plenty of time so don't feel constrained if you want to get if you want to expand a little bit on some particular question feel free to do all right so i guess in regards to the academic background and first introduction with chain so you mentioned that you mentioned scratch which is is one of the most powerful programming languages that is not available in smart contract development, unfortunately. Imagine how easy it would have been if uh, there was a GUI. Hopefully soon someone will make a scratch for smart contracts. (laughs) Then there was Python and yeah, I guess it's a a great note that Python is, is could be there there's a lot of different opinions on which first languages are good to start but yeah it's certainly one of those that has a rather quick learning curve in regards to the syntax and then you also mentioned bitcoin so bitcoin was basically a first introduction to these this domain of distributed applications and yeah i guess in regards to other l1 chains a bit curious to also hear your first introduction to Algorand. And perhaps maybe you could also generalize and just start with any modern L1 chains that initially sprinkled your interest. And essentially, yeah, what was your journey towards Algorand in the first place? And what actually sparked your interest to, to dig a bit deeper into that particular chain? Because once again, to reference the episode five with Aaron Martinez, very interesting insight on the amount of total engineers in the entire 
blockchain development space ranging from 200 to 300,000 people and once again extremely competitive space hundreds of different chains and projects so when a certain developer lands on particular chain the, there is usually an interesting uh, background and reasoning behind that chain was uh, specifically chosen yeah would be interesting to hear your journey there yeah i guess my journey starts with the cryptocurrency exchanges so my first exchange was coinbase that was my first introduction to it. And at the time I tried to buy one pound of Bitcoin, which with Coinbase's fees, most of that was paid in transaction fees or the fees that Coinbase take. So I didn't really get much in terms of actual assets. So I started to look at different platforms. I came across crypto.com. So this was, I would say about two to three years ago, probably closer to three years now. This was before Matt Damon, right? Yes, much, much, much before Matt Damon. I think at the time they had just started working on their like visa cards, their crypto visa cards that you can use in stores. That was one of the main things that appealed to me. I was like, okay, so I can spend my money and get cash back in crypto. This seems quite interesting. So I downloaded that the app I got set up on the exchange. I bought a few different cryptocurrencies. I bought a bit of Bitcoin. I bought a bit of Ethereum. And then that's when I started to look at, okay, I was reading a lot about not your keys, not your coins. How do I set up my own wallet? How do I get it off the exchange to my wallet? And I I think at the time I downloaded a wallet called Atomic Wallet. And it was there where I came across Algorand. So on, on their wallet, they actually list which tokens give you staking rewards. So Algorand was one of them. A few of the others were like Neo and Ontology. And there were a handful of others. And that's what kind of first brought Algorand to my eyes was the staking rewards. Because my perspective was I would like something that can generate assets over time. And my vision, even at that point, was for the very long term, something that can generate me value is something that I would like to look into. And then I went on Coinbase. I saw they had Algorand there. And then that's when I decided, okay, this, if, if I started looking out, what was around for the staking rewards and the staking rewards were being paid out in effectively real time where you can update your balance at any time and which meant that you could compound your earnings a lot more quickly so that was the big draw for me and then that's when i started to look at the actual technology behind it what it was how it worked who they were partnered with and that's when i came across the white paper and Something about the white paper just made sense compared to some of the other white papers that I had seen, like Neo and uh, Ontology. So I don't know, I can't, I couldn't tell you what it was specifically. It could be general simplicity, because compared to the Bitcoin white paper, which is a lot more condensed and a lot more full on, it assumes, I would say, it assumes a lot more knowledge. For me, the Algorand white paper was something at that time I could just easily comprehend just reading it once through. And that was the biggest draw for me. The other big draw was the fact that the transaction costs were actually low, which I'll, which I think we'll discuss a bit later. But when I looked at, say, Ethereum and withdrawing it off of Coinbase or Crypto.com to my own wallet, the transaction fees were insane. And I was like, at the time, I was only putting play money, $10, $20, $30. I was like, I don't want to be spending $10 just to try get my Ethereum from the app onto my wallet. So for me, Ethereum from the start was a no-go. And it's something that I would always look at. I would go to Uniswap or another dApp and check how much a transaction would cost me. 
So at that point, I had set up MetaMask on my browser. So I'll go to these platforms. I'll see how much a transaction would cost me. You would see a transaction costing me $50. And that would just, in my heart, it would just make me say, okay, I'm not going to use Ethereum. I literally cannot afford it at this stage as a student. So that... Which year was the Just curious because Ethereum's gas fees was in many cases was also largely tied to the overall market cap and yeah. there's been quite a few big bull runs like the 2017 yeah. one and the recent uh, 2021 i think it was probably sometime in like 2020 where at that point it was still quite high for me and one one thing to that for me the exchanges their withdrawal fees are generally a lot higher than what the market rate is and yeah they charge the gas fee plus yeah of course you especially it. if it's a centralized exchange exactly they're they so basically like banks in this case. yeah so for me that was like the biggest pushback because i didn't want to put money in something and then lose half of it just trying to get a hold of it and being able to use it on various platforms because for me a part of my web free journey was interacting with the apps that are available. You hear about these dApps, these tools, these DeFi tools, and you wonder, okay, how can I get involved with it? That was something which pushed me a bit away from Ethereum. And around the same time I came across Algorand, I also came across like Binance Smart Chain. I can't remember if it was released at that time or not, but what I saw was that it was the transaction fees were much cheaper compared to Ethereum and at the time, the market cap for Binance was higher than Algorand. So that was probably my middle step towards Algorand was actually Binance Smart Chain. And Binance Smart Chain was my first introduction to using MetaMask, using Trust Wallet, interacting with the DeFi tools like PancakeSwap. It's, it's such a big platform. So interacting with that was one of my first experiences with buying coins i remember in 2020 me and my friend we spent like a good few months trying to trade in like coins which were basically just rubbish like elon elon doge rocket <laughs> all of these coins which are like oddly named just as a bit of fun and just to see how things go and the thing is you could do it with relatively small value in terms of money so that was something that kind of got us the hands-on experience with interacting with the blockchain but then comparing it to looking back at some points, the transaction fees on Binance Smart Chain were $50 or uh, it's not $50, sorry, 50 cents, like 50 cents to a dollar. That was prices that we saw. And even then it's still relatively high as a, a student who doesn't have a fixed income, who wants to get involved with the space. And I wasn't too familiar with the use of test nets. So that wasn't something that I had considered using. Oh, I can use a test net. I can get some free free bsc token and interact with the testnet version of all of these apps that hadn't occurred to me at the point and then it was after that where i got more involved with algorand mostly because of the staking rewards where in my eyes it was i can put it there i can leave it and i can accumulate there was one i don't want to call it a dap but there was one tool at the time that someone had written was it was a Algorand optimizer for these. Oh, stages. yes, the Algo optimizer. Yeah, it yeah. was a very nice solution, unfortunately. Yeah, that, was, that was like yeah. my very first dApp or interaction with the community where I joined a Discord. I figured out how it worked. It was pretty cool for transactions, what were cheap. I was like, oh, wow, if I sent him 0.1 Algo, I can get like 100. He can update my wallet 100 times, which will last me ha however long. 
And that is what kind of blew my mind. I was like, this is so cheap where you don't even feel the cost of the transactions. Yeah, that's like my early history with Algorand as, as far as I can remember. Just for an extra context for the listeners there, Algo Optimizer was a project that was running for, I believe, a year and a half or maybe a couple of years before the governance was started by the Algorand Foundation. And the for people interested in technical details there, it was a very nice implementation that relied on self-hosting an Algorand node. And they essentially allowed you to automatically compound the rewards because in before the governance was introduced the the incentives were aggregating on your wallet but in order to essentially claim them you would have to send a transaction of any type on your wallet and this will initiate the claims that algo optimizer thing was essentially just tracking your wallet and finding an optimal time when to send an aggregation call. I believe the pricing fee was just 0.5 algo or something like that, or 0.9 algo. I said unfortunately because it unfortunately had to close down because this feature is no longer available. But uh, yeah, sorry for, for the off track there. It's just every call asking in, in, in the Discord as well back in the days on how the thing was implemented. And yeah, yeah. sorry, nice solution. I mean, it's quite good for people to know it's the history of Algorand and what how we know it today is very different to how it was back in the day. When I first got into Algorand, there were no dApps, there, no, there was no DeFi, there was no NFTs. It was just like a bare bones ecosystem with a lot of partners working on things, but not things that we could really use. And that was the first, you call it a dApp if you want, but it's not really, but it was the first tool out there which worked and served a purpose and people were using it. Yeah, that was really awesome time for me. Let's just follow along with these questions since we also mentioned that you are a host of Blockchain and Beyond. Yeah. And now that our listeners are familiar with how you got into blockchain development in general, your first introduction to Algorand, I suppose, would be nice to also cover what was the idea to start the podcast? Was it also some something that you would say was a way for you to share your experience in regards to how you got into the space in the first place? And would be also curious to hear what is... Like, who are you aiming uh, in regards to the audience? Is it something that is specific to, let's say, people from business engineering backgrounds or you're trying to make it as accessible as possible for any audience? Yeah, so my motivations behind starting Blockchain and Beyond were multi-pronged, I would say. So there was one part which was about my journey of learning. So blockchain is, for most people, inaccessible. It's quite complicated. It's quite technical. So part of part of me starting this podcast was to document this and help educate people where I can. I try to make my episodes easy to listen to for people who are perhaps familiar with the technology, but not super technical or people who may already be in the space and they want to learn about a new project or new developments going on. I will admit there are a handful of episodes, very few, which are extremely technical, which I do mention that at the start of those episodes, because I do enjoy having a deep technical conversation with people who are actually coding on the blockchain, developing tools and, and whatnot. So part of it was documentation. Part of it was credentials is the best word I can think of. So I, I saw blockchain as something that I wanted to carry on with in, in the future, perhaps as a career or otherwise. And 
as with all careers, you generally need some sort of background or experience or credentials to perhaps land a job or work with people. And at the time, or even now, I'm working in cyber cybersecurity, which is another field I'm really interested in. And it would be difficult for me to just, for example, leave this job and just start a job in a blockchain-based company or project. So for me, it was about building up a like a library of things that I've done and researched and talked about. So I can show not just to myself and other people, but also potential employers that I have I have knowledge on these topics. I've, I've researched these in my own time. This is a project I'm doing completely on the side as a CV, but a CV that they can actually get an in-depth listen to. They can look at all of the episodes and say, okay, this episode looks interesting. Let me listen to what he has to say. So it was a mixture of both credentials and also education for other people. Yeah, and it is catered for people to make it easy to understand. And also it was a big learning experience for me. So I started this approximately about a year ago when it's probably been around a year since I recorded my first ever draft of my first ever episode. And you learn a lot. So my first episode that I recorded, I was effectively just talking into my microphone, reading off a script that I had written up in Notepad. And I showed it to one of my closest friends and he said that he was up front. He said, it sounds horrible. You're you're very just monotone. There's no emotion in your voice. So I took that on board and then I tried to make it a bit more relaxed, non nonchalant, a little bit while well, still trying to keep it relatively simple. And over the past year, I think I've developed my style a lot more. It's much more easier for me to just sit down and record because most people will find it hard to just sit down and talk into a microphone, especially if there's not anyone on the other side. If you're on a phone call or if you're in a meeting with webcams, you get feedback from the other person, their facial expressions, the way they're looking, the way they're nodding, that gives you feedback. But when you're talking directly into a microphone, it's quite hard to understand that. Especially, I've learned a lot in terms of speaking. Some parts, how to, when to slow down, when to speed up, when to breathe. Breathing is a big thing, especially at the start. I would find myself not breathing, so I would run out of breath. So my voice would slowly get more and more high pitched, and I would have to pause the recording, spend a minute just getting my breath back, and then restarting the recording. So just small things like these. And it makes me feel more confident when I talk to someone about blockchain that I know what I'm talking about. If they say the best way to learn is by teaching other people. And if that's the goal of my podcast, I feel more confident in my own knowledge. And because I'm putting it out on the internet, the best thing about the internet is if you post something that's wrong, someone will come and tell you it's wrong. If you post on Reddit or on Twitter, you know, something which isn't right or isn't completely accurate, people will jump at you to tell you it's wrong. And that's probably the best thing. And also a skill that I've learned is not to be afraid of being wrong. Cause on Twitter, I say things that I and how I see it, but it's perhaps not accurate of the whole situation. And then someone replies to me and says, no, you're wrong. It's actually, it goes like this. And then I say, thank you for informing me. So it's built a lot of soft skills. It's helped me be more confident in my speaking as well. It's made me open to putting my work out there. So talking about what I'm doing, and that includes at work. People at work know I'm into blockchain. I have a podcast and it's something I'm proud of now. At the start, I was a bit more, do people really care? Is anyone going to listen? But now I'm like, I don't care. 
if people listen or not. If, to me, that's not the big thing to me. It's if one person listens and they learn something, that's good enough for me. Um, and that's something I can be proud of. The blockchain, the podcast has helped my technical understanding and commercial awareness, but also developed me as a character much more than I had anticipated. I completely agree on that point. There are so many things that you don't take into the account when decide, deciding to start a show like this. You always think that the hardest thing would be just finding guests or things like that. But then there's just so many things that come into the preparation and the, the way you set your speech, the way you adjust with the conversation and yes i would certainly say that the most ideal scenario is when you of course meet with a person in real life right this is the optimal yeah. scenario when you can have a face-to-face -face conversation but in a remote setting a visual feedback or sort of visual cues from the guests is a big advantage i would say all right so before we move into the deep dive into the uh, so, sort of your assessment on your experience with the Algorand blockchain. I'm also curious because you mentioned the work in cybersecurity, right? How much of that particular domain would you say overlaps with fault-tolerant distributed systems and blockchain systems? Because one would think that aside from cryptography, there's a lot of very important applications of cybersecurity as well because i'm not sure about the consensus mechanisms them themselves I, I think it's implied but even looking at for example the wallet clients right the variety of the wallet clients out there and would you say that or if you were to list a set of very important applications of cybersecurity, what would you say is the most common overlap uh, between blockchain and cybersecurity in this context? Yeah, I think the biggest trend we're seeing emerging in this space is identity management. Identity management in the sense that currently a lot of these systems run through centralized networks. So when I want to log into, for example, YouTube, I will sign in with my Google account and it goes through the Google servers for authentication. Yes, Google have a distributed network of servers, so if they have fail safes and backups, but I'm still relying on a central network. And then seeing this slowly change, so at my workplace, we work a lot with Microsoft technologies and Microsoft have been developing a lot of decentralized identity tools. And one of them is the lower level technology they're calling is Microsoft's ION, which stands for Identity Overlay Network. And this aims to be a permissionless network where people can use to basically verify and authenticate people or identities. And then this is also backed up by the Bitcoin blockchain, where they write some information to the Bitcoin blockchain to use as some sort of a backup or a store point. I'm not sure of the complete technical details, but the idea is you, if you wanted to log into Google, for example, you would log in with your digital identity, which can be stored on your phone or perhaps a browser wallet extension. And then this, instead of going to the Google servers, it would go to a network. So it would pass through a node as the a transaction would do in a blockchain. And then it would be that transaction or that message would be spread across the network and each node would from my understanding effectively have a list or have an understanding of all the identities and what connections they are allowed 
So when your transaction approaches the blockchain, all the nodes can basically verify if should Foz an actor be allowed to access YouTube. In this case, it would be yes. And then it would be the network as a whole, which authorizes me rather than relying on Google servers to be online at that particular moment. So that's just one example. The other example is a different way of storing and sharing your data. When you apply for a job, they may ask for your university degree certificate, which most universities give you in a paper format. So you would have to scan it in and then email it. The alternative to this is the university will publish you a QR code specifically for you. Using your phone or browser wallet, you would be able to scan this and it would create an identity or create a, a blob of sorts. Mm. It would basically store the information of your certificate on your wallet. And this would include cryptographic measures so that you can verify that it was the university who actually sent this to you. Then when you go to apply for a job, you can simply upload that identity to the website and that would give the, them all of the information that they need to verify your name, your course, your final grades, which modules you studied, and also verify that it was indeed published by the university themselves and hasn't been tampered or isn't a fake. So that's one of one of the big things that um, mm. I'm seeing emerging is identity. But there's use case of blockchains in all areas. Ethics and supply chains are a big one. Healthcare is a big one. I think we're seeing AI come into blockchain a lot more now and decentralized computing. So instead of accessing the cloud, you would access a decentralized network, which can store your data, which can execute code for you. And as you would do with a cloud service, you would mm -hmm. pay for the service. So functionally, it would operate the same way. It's only different in the sort of backend. And that's, I think, the general theme of blockchain as well. A lot of the technology is backend technology. It's not something a user on the front end really knows that they're interacting with. Websites can integrate with blockchain without the end user knowing that it's happening. And blockchain's use cases go far beyond cryptocurrencies and NFTs. Cryptocurrencies are the ones that we see all across the media, as are NFTs. NFTs also have more use cases, which, I, which we can talk about a bit later. I don't want to spoil your things, but like identity is basically mm -hmm. the big one I'm seeing emerging in the crypto space. And transition to the discussion, the discuss, discussions on the assessment, and aside from the cybersecurity aspects, in your opinion, what do you think are the most important aspects of, let's say, any blockchain system? Yeah, not going to say security. And the reason I don't say security is the default standard for security is in all blockchains. The standard of using hashing of encryption is standard across all blockchains. There's very few which are deviating from the, the like the the minimum standard, right? Mm -hmm. And so that means that it's something which is it's a system we know is secure for now. There hasn't been any exploits or zero day vulnerabilities, and because that's the de facto standard for the industry. It's not something you need to focus on as much. It's something that is important. Don't get me wrong. If the protocol was to become vulnerable, then we would need to make a shift to it. Um, with quantum computing as well, that's something that we need to consider. But for me, the biggest things are finality. So that's how long does it take for the transaction to actually be settled 
and also transaction fees. And transaction fees for me is a big one about accessibility. Making sure that anyone, if we're if our goal is to build an open permissionless system, using it needs to be also open and permissionless would be free. It needs to be free to use or effectively free to use. And I can give the example of Algorand where, you know, the transaction cost for a simple transaction or a contract call is one one thousandth of Algorand, which means for about 30 to 35 cents, you can get a thousand transactions out of that. And for a lot of people, that is, I would say, very affordable. And it's it has denominations that you can go down, right? So if you can only or if you only have small amount of assets, you can still partake in the blockchain without necessarily losing a large percentage of your holdings on transactions. So I think transaction fees and finality, finality because when you're interacting with a system and if blockchain is looking to compete with current systems that we have, whether that's payments or banking, we need to make sure that the tools that we're using are particularly fast to, to support the user's expectations because no user wants to move to a slower system. If anything, everyone wants to go faster. No one wants to go slower. And it just needs to be easy to use. Yeah, I certainly agree on the notes in regards to ease of use, right? It's, one would think that it's a byproduct of the fact that it's still a very young field in regards to general amount of people that are currently building for all of these different projects in the space and accessibility is it's getting there right but i don't think you could you're we're still in a stage where you could give your phone to your grandmother and say please send me one bitcoin and she will easily do but the day when this is easily parsable by any age group then i think this is when we can assume that there's a big adoption but i also wanted to add a few notes on your point in regards to having security as a de facto goal or de facto standard in the industry for any blockchain system i guess in a bit more theoretical context a consistency is something that directly relates to security of a chain and aside from the if we for example take the bitcoin white paper for its practicality, of course, the big interesting innovation in that sp uh, space was the fact that they've put this uh, economic incentive that is heavily inspired by who has the largest compute power. But then another interesting aspect was the fact that if you look at the, say, research on Byzantine full tolerant consensus mechanisms in the 80s, none of them ever considered sacrificing consistency in the chain because once again it's one of the main features that affects the security of the chain and most of the applications is of course financial systems you get to manage a lot of money a lot of assets so it implies that you absolutely cannot sacrifice on consistency and this was one of the other interesting innovations in regards to the bitcoin white papers because they essentially optimized for availability over consistency, meaning that any node can produce the block without, again, any permission, right? But then you have this longest chain rule and you rely on the deepest sort of 
path that contains and economic incentive there guarantees that the deepest node is always the one that wasted the most compute power. So they based on consistency and showed and opened a very interesting branch of research for other folks that it's possible to build systems with availability over consistency and it can function. But if you ask me the question whether this is necessary to do for something to achieve scalability, I think consistency is still something that is way more important than availability in some contexts, which in case of Algorand is actually the case. They do not sacrifice on consistency in this case. And it's entirely different approach. Once again, they do not fork. And I'm sure you're aware of the specifics of the consensus mechanism there. All right. So given your experience maintaining the blockchain, I'm sure you met a lot of fascinating guests in the field. What would you like, what would you say is differentiating Algorand's BFT consensus against other modern L1 chains. Because once again, we have proof of stake, right? It's a very com competitive field as well. There are many different variations of proof of stake. Then there's other chains that still continue on that original idea from the Bitcoin white paper and do the rely on longest chain rules. What would you say is the main sort of differentiating factor for this consensus specifically? Yeah, I think the two big ones are barriers to entry. And so by barriers to entry, it's how difficult is it to participate in the, this proof of stake protocol? So in the case of Ethereum, you need a minimum of 32 Ethereum to actually stake, which for most people now is inaccessible. 32 Ethereum is a lot of money to put up. So someone who wasn't invested in Ethereum a long time ago will find it very difficult to get in now, especially if they're not extremely wealthy. So I think that's the big one which differentiates Algorand to other protocols. And the second one is to do with delegation. So in proof, pure proof of stake, it's relatively easy to set up your own node. Combined with the fact that it's there's no minimum stake, there's no reason to be delegating your holdings to someone else to carry out proof of stake on your behalf. A lot of projects, I'll say Ethereum again, and from my understanding, I think Cardano or Polkadot, you have to, you can stake your tokens to a pool operator and they're the ones who are staking on your behalf. The same applies to Binance Smart Chain, where they have a delegated proof of authority sort of system where you attach your holdings to a validator and then you get a bit of the rewards. Those are definitely the two biggest ones because it gives people independence. It makes the system permissionless, which is a recurring theme. The requirements to set up a node are not particularly high. The participation node can be run on a Raspberry Pi. And relatively, looking at setting it up, it's not too difficult. And for someone who has experience with command line interface and working with Linux systems, it's a relatively straightforward process and there's a lot of documentation available to support with that. Someone who only has 10 Algorand, for example, can still participate in the consensus. Their probability of being chosen for producing said block will be quite low, but they can partake in the consensus, whereas someone with one Ethereum or five Ethereum or 10 Ethereum can't do so directly. 
they have to delegate their stake to one of these services, whether that's Lido or Coinbase. And current big issue with Ethereum is people who have staked do not have the option to unstake. So the unstaking for people who have chosen to stake is still a number of months away. And people have staked in anticipation of the merge, which happened, I believe, last month. Yeah, um, it was for, September, for, I believe. Yeah, in September for quite a few years. I've been hearing about the merge for a long time and that, oh, stake your Ethereum now. And those people are basically stuck with the Ethereum state until these withdrawals become open. So they're held in a system that they can't get out of, which is quite a difficult place to be in. Whereas some of these other chains have an unbonding period. So when you delegate your stake to a pool, there can be a 30 day unstaking period, which means if you need your assets available now, that's not possible. You have to wait 30 days, which 30 days is a relatively long foresight to have, especially in choppy market conditions for some people where they may not feel comfortable with their investments. They may change their mind. That's quite difficult to do. Whereas with Algorand, your participation key is linked to your wallet. You're free to spend your assets in your wallet and it will obviously fluctuate your participation, but it doesn't lock you into the system. You're not forced to stay in there for a period of time and you can step out of it whenever you want. So I think, yeah, the lower barriers to entry, which leads to not having to delegate your stake are probably the two biggest things for me yeah and i guess just to add some supplemental details there i think it's also important and i may be generalizing for delegated proof of stake in this particular case but i think it's also very important to not actually make information in the chain like not to publish information in regards to the selection of who is going to propose the vote or let's say if there's a, some, some sort of committee it's very important to have the information in regards to who is going to propose or who is going to be chosen hidden up until they actually have one in case of algorand they rely on vrfs right up until the lottery is going to identify who is the proposer or who is the part of committee because once again, I guess a good analogy for the delegated proof of stake is the way how the governance models in countries work. You have a set of delegated uh, actors who are responsible for managing these uh, communities and their countries. And the issue there is there's there, there are publicly known entities even before the decision-making is already done. And in the context of a distributed system, this leaves some space for potential DDoS attacks when you already know who is going to be the node that will eventually make up some decisions. So I'd say in regards to Algorand, a fascinating thing is that if you start from the consensus itself, from the higher level aspects, and if you're specifically interested in the engineering side of things, actually looking into the implementation of the node, for example, is a very good tool to also see because there, there's a lot of interesting 
and exotic cryptography in the white paper as well. But then there's also a lot of very fascinating engineering applications and optimizations in different places that are not necessarily covered by the white paper. And I'd say, yeah, there's a lot of interesting details on how they managed to do everything offline. And once again, if you have the block already proposed, it's similar to trying to stop an article on WikiLeaks. It's already out there and it's being spread through the gossip protocol, so you can't really do much there. All right, so let's dive into overview of Algorand's advantages. And once again, I guess the key angle here is if there's anything you'd like to highlight in contrast with other prominent L1 chains, that would be also great. Sorry, are we on disadvantages now? No, sorry. I think the topic of the primary advantages. So I think there's a a few few particular features that we can cover. Oh, sorry. You have lost me a little bit. Sorry. So we... Oh, yeah. So, yeah. We we covered the... Finality? So we covered the important aspects of any blockchain system, then how does Algorand consensus works? And yeah, I know you already mentioned some of those uh, covering the advantages, but uh, yeah, let's dive into it properly then. Perfect. Yeah, the the two big advantages that I see on the Algorand blockchain are, again, finality. And on Algorand, the current block time on average is 3.7 seconds. That means when you send a transaction, on average, you can expect it to settle around about that time. So in three to four seconds, you can expect your transaction to be settled. You can expect your assets to be received by your counterparty, which is quite amazing to think about because when you make a payment online, you will need to put in, for example, your card details and you'll press submit transaction. And then even then it still takes some time. It will take, I would say five to 10 seconds. There's usually a lot of background checks going on. And in some cases, you may be required to do a two-factor verification from your banking provider. So the whole process can take up to 30, 45 seconds. And with these banking transactions, there is no finality until a few days down the line. A lot of bank apps, what is when you make a transaction, the transaction will actually show as pending. And the pending doesn't actually become an official transaction until a few days afterwards. So the finality of a lot of these banking systems is three to four days. And on larger scales between international banks, it can be potentially weeks as well as they settle on a much longer time frame. So finality is really important knowing that your transaction is done before, before you even know it, which is a really big thing, especially if we're moving to a faster ecosystem. People want payments to be faster we need more finality and it's a feat of engineering that they're able to get the block times down to 3.7 seconds for the information to travel across the entire network and for people to vote and approve is is i don't know how they've done it but it's it's quite amazing and the second big benefit for our grant is the, the transaction fees i mentioned this again slightly before but the transaction cost for making a simple transaction or interacting with a smart contract is one one thousandth of algo so that's 0.01 algo and that's super cheap for 30 cents or 35 cents you can get a thousand transactions worth of algo which if you look at it on a per transaction basis it's it's not even one cent it's like much lower than that 
And that is such a big thing for accessibility for people. And it leads, I would say it leads way for innovation, for testing on mainnet, especially it lets people try new things it, without the fear of losing out on much. With Ethereum, for example, if you want to try a new application, you would need to have a good amount of gas fees ready. But then you also run the risk of your transaction not being accepted, which leads to other problems. Your gas fees are gone. Your transaction can be stuck in limbo. Whereas with Algorand, they've built a system where it's incredibly cheap. And I would say one of the main reasons Algorand has a transaction cost is just to avoid flooding of the network from someone trying to attack the system. So this transaction cost is almost symbolic in a sense and a little bit functional. And that's the big thing. I, if there's a new application launching, I can happily just go out and test it without being concerned about, oh, will my transaction go through? How long will it take? If these blocks are settling within four seconds, learning how to use a new application literally takes a minute. Connect wallet. Okay, 100 algo or 50 algo. Okay, send transaction, sign the transaction. And within 20 seconds, you've carried out the main functions of the application. Whereas on, on other chains, you may still be waiting some time for your transaction to be picked up and verified before yeah. you can actually carry on. Yeah, those those are certainly important aspects in the, or if we are talking about the practicality of it, but, and we've been talking a lot about advantages in this case, but uh, there there's no such thing as a perfect, perfect software system. So also curious to hear on your take on the disadvantages. And once again, perhaps comparing other prominent chains and perhaps comparing something that you also got familiarity with in the Web3 space before. Yeah, so I guess one of the one of the disadvantages, which is probably a smaller one, is more related to setting up a node, whether that's a participation node or a relay node. Currently, you have to execute a number of transactions and do a lot of configuration of the system that you're working with, in most cases Linux, to get the node up and running. That can obviously, it will take some time. If the step is executing, you step away or you step away for a few hours, that step may only take five minutes to be done. So you've had a large period of time where your setup has effectively stalled because you want a round to continue it. And I would say this is something which is prominent across most chains and most node setups. So it's not a particularly an Algorand specific problem, but having a sort of one click setup tool will be very useful. I believe some potentially exist for Bitcoin, I believe. Mm -hmm. I would expect if it's a Linux-based system, some networks would perhaps even deploy their own ISO. So an ISO that you can just install onto a Raspberry Pi or a virtual machine or however you decide to, to run to run the node where it comes pre-configured with a lot of the it pre-installs a lot of the libraries that you may need and the tools. And then you just need to carry out the last bits of the configuration connecting your wallet, filling out your addresses and other network settings, that would be a big benefit because I've spoken to a lot of people who are not necessarily technically sound, but are willing to run nodes on their own hardware at their workplace, at their home. People have devices which are available 24 seven, which remain online, but they just don't have the technical knowledge to set up a node. So for these people, if there was an installer you can download, you click it, 
it takes you through like an installation wizard. You fill in some information and in the background, it will install everything for you. I think that's probably one of the biggest things to help with adoption. And I can see the benefit of it in the Algorand space because it's much more connected. But I presume that it's also a pain point across a lot of other chains. And even guides I've seen for node setups for other chains all require you to be familiar with the command line, executing commands. So that's one thing we can definitely improve on. And the other massive one, which is, I would say it's quite a hot topic and quite highly debated between the community is node incentives. So currently there are no monetary or financial incentives to run a node. In Algorand, we have two main node types, a participation node and a relay node. So participation nodes are the nodes that carry out the block generation and the block voting. And the relay nodes are help distribute these blocks and transactions across the network. And there's no incentives to running either of them. The requirements for running a relay node are much higher than a participation node. So some people, including myself, are of the belief that there should be some incentives for people running these nodes. The reason being that if the barrier to entry, if the cost of running these nodes are quite high, there was a thread on Reddit from quite some time ago, which I believe they said around like $300 a month. I can't remember the exact number. That for most people is not something they can do. However, if there was some sort of subsidy or you had access to some of the transaction fees or there were fees specifically to go towards the relay nodes, a lot more people would be open to the idea of running these this network infrastructure. And it would probably increase the number of nodes available out there. Some people have made the arguments against this, saying that for participation nodes or even relay nodes that the projects that are running on Algorand have their own incentives to run these nodes to make sure that they can pick up their own transactions and aren't reliant on someone else's nodes being available, which is completely understandable. I also agree with that. I also believe that if there is incentives, you will see more people running nodes, which will overall be better for the health of the ecosystem, especially in the long term. Algorand currently has partners who support them in running nodes. Partnerships don't necessarily last forever partnerships will run out. If they will renew is a completely different question. The foundation doesn't have money forever and the foundation has limited resources. So creating a system which is self-sustaining will be quite important. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a proposal in the upcoming governance periods which discusses node incentives, even if it's increasing the transaction costs slightly and that increase gets fed to like relay or participation nodes. That's something that I wouldn't be surprised to see or is something which is, for me, a step in the right direction. I guess just to add a bit on both of those, it's certainly great remarks. In regards to the node setup, I think one of the sort of reasons for why at the moment there is, if we are talking specifically about the documentation in regards to the installation, of the node, uh, whether it's a participant node or whether it's a relay node. I think initially there wasn't a an explicit requirement to actually make this accessible from the installation standpoint to any lay user. And of course, this implies that you have to have certain familiarity with the tools that are required for you to, to set this up. You mentioned also 
that it's if we are talking specifically about the set of additional prerequisites that are required to set up the node. I think it's explicit in in, in macOS and in Linux-based operating systems. But in regards to Windows, by the way, I think there is something that Rand Labs provides. I know that this is not something that is out of the box available on the Algorand documentation itself, but just to highlight as well that there's, I believe there were already certain steps towards that particular goal, one-click installation. I think Rand Labs provides a Windows-based installer that is basically an MSI executable that you run and install like a regular Windows app, and then you get access to a configured node. But in regards to the setup, I think this is heavily linked with the incentive itself. And yeah, I certainly agree that the amount of relay nodes out there are way less than the participation nodes. It's still something that I think you might be able to run on a Raspberry. You might need a very beefy Raspberry though and a bit more memory. But the ideal scenario is when you deploy it in some cloud infrastructure and yes, running a node such as the participation node, sorry, such as the relay node might actually be quite costly for an average user. And if there's no incentive mechanism, then things might get complicated in this particular regard. And yeah, I'm familiar with a few of those threats. I think it's a, it's a pretty, pretty intense topic. Yeah, and I think it's still being debated. But what I can note on this is some blockchain systems and not to name names but in particular blockchain systems you also have prevalence of sort of ideologies in regards to how the consensus itself should be evolving so there are some projects with bit market caps that i would say put a bit too much emphasis on ideology such as if something is set in stone like if you build a bridge you probably should have this bridge standing for many years without any changes in that. But the thing with Algorand governance model and the consensus itself is leaving certain room for flexibility and extensibility that can be evolved over time. So I think, yeah, I think it might be a very valid proposition that we may see for the further changes and further improvements in the consensus, or perhaps it could be something on the level of the ecosystem tooling that will remove that entry-level barrier for setting up those nodes for not just developers who are familiar with these things, but as well as putting an additional incentive. So I certainly agree with those points. And a good thing is that Algorand does have mechanisms for essentially addressing things like that, because in the hindsight, we are still talking about a relatively young chain that has been live for c comparing with those folks who are with very big market caps and taking the big spots on things like coin market cap and etc. Yeah, let's see well, how it happens. But it's also nice to see the community constantly trying to pinpoint the disadvantage disadvantages and seeing how things can be moved on to eventually be proposed yeah i think with most communities is if somebody raises a point which they think might should be changed or they want to have a discussion if someone says i don't think the current node incentive or the lack of node incentives is right a lot of people will jump out to attack the person rather than the idea and i think that's a big trend especially just in online forums in general 
where a lot of people will attack the person rather than the idea that they present, which I think is a big cultural thing that needs to be changed. If someone presents an idea that you don't like, the most you can do is present a counter argument and hope that person either sees your point, your perspective, and in a lot of these cases, attacking the person who made this point isn't necessarily productive. If anything, it will, it will make them more hostile towards you or other people presenting a similar viewpoint. And I think that's something you see quite a lot on Twitter, especially. Let's see how things change with Elon Musk taking over Fingers the company. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think are going to be the... We've been discussing consensus, we've been discussing advantages and disadvantages of this particular chain, but what do you think would be the big trends coming forward in the upcoming 2023 in Web3, or perhaps it could be something applicable to features that these chains provide, such as Cs and things like that? Yeah, I think the big trend, one of the upcoming trends, might not be in 2023, might be in the next bull market, which is where we see these which trends actually make it out alive, is again related to NFTs, but one of these is utility NFTs. So traditionally we've seen NFTs being used as a medium to express creatively, to express creative talents, which has worked very well for a lot of people. And we see these projects a lot of, especially the big projects, desperately trying to find something to develop with. A lot of these projects will, what they'll do is they'll release a version two of their project, which is a slight variation with like board apes. For example, you have the mutant apes, which end up being a cheaper knockoff of the original with slightly different art, which means more people can participate in, in their ecosystem, in their discord or whatever, but it doesn't provide much value outside of that. So it becomes more of a status or symbol and icon, which doesn't necessarily have long longevity. So I think a big trend which is coming is to do with real world utility. Um, and now that a lot of hype has settled down, I would say people want to look at NFTs that will bring them value in the real world rather than something to buy and flip. And businesses the people doing this will be businesses that have something to sell or offer. I'll make a note here of Travelex, who is a project building on Algorand. And the aim is to tokenize plane tickets or flight tickets, which can be more freely traded. So currently you buy an airline ticket, you fill out your details and that ticket is stuck to you. You can't, if you can't make it for whatever reason, you can't sell it. It's very difficult to change the name on the, of the ticket. It's very difficult to change the time and date of the flight. In some cases I've had where trying to change the date and time cost two to three times more than I paid for the ticket itself. And TravelX are trying to make that a lot more easier to do. And the good thing is airline tickets can be tokenized as an NFT, which is useful for people. And if they can, if they build an, a marketplace where these can be traded, there's potential value there. But then it's also good to be conscious of the potential downsides. If there's a market, if you can buy and sell these airline tickets freely, people may try to buy them just to flip them later on. Yeah. I'm just curious if a bit more details in regards to 
how exactly they're managing the state of the NFT after the flight is performed already. But I suppose they have some sort of manager contract or some sort of standardized, or sorry, in this particular case, it could be centralized, right? It could be a centralized... Yeah, uh, so from my understanding, they partner with a number of airlines. I think they've partnered with some airlines, especially in Latin America at the moment. So I presume that they have some sort of relationship with them where, you know, a number of the tickets for each flight perhaps may be given to TravelX to issue as an NFT. Some part of it would perhaps need to be mutable if the time and date of the flight was to be changed. There's some parts that would need to be private. Like there, there needs to be a system to prevent people. You can't present all of the information of the NFT directly upfront because it could lead to potential fraud. If there's a barcode on it, that's not something that you can present freely. So there needs to be a system in place which also privatizes some of this information until you're closer to the actual time of the flight, where it's two or three or six hours before the flight is when, you know, your boarding pass barcode becomes accessible. I presume that's how it would work. I haven't mm-hmm. had a chance to actually buy a ticket from there because it's <laughs> it's not in, in a locality which is near me. I think it's a, a interesting concept, but I haven't looked too deep into how they would do it. I'm trying to organize some time to, to speak with one of the founders to talk more about it because I think it's really cool, especially as someone who enjoys traveling. If it's something that can make my life easier or make my life cheaper or better, then I'm all for it. And that's utility that I'm talking about is if people get some sort of tangible benefit from using these NFTs, then that will potentially help the business grow. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And an interesting fact is also it's a system in place that is already live and working and they have a pool of users who essentially can use the NFT capabilities on this particular instance and they can sell it on the marketplace and the management of your own ticket is largely simplified and just to add a few other things to this list i I think fractionalized investments is also an interesting topic and i believe there's a company called lofty.ai which are also basing some of its infrastructure on algorand and they allow you to invest in real estate where that particular real estate is essentially organized by a set of fractions that are represented by assets, which are once again a superset of NFTs in instance of Algorand. And yeah, there's certainly a lot more utilities that are going to be happening. And hopefully over time, that stigma over art and the application of NFTs to art are going to be going down because it's, it's just one of those things where you have a lot of specifically talking about art applications for the NFT. There's often a lot of value that is tied to the speculation and people just people just want to make some money (laughs) yeah they just want to make some money and it's it's always attracting a lot of bad actors and many cases yeah there's certainly removing that stigma over time would be something that a lot of blockchain systems should strive for I think Lofty is quite a good hands-on example of one of these systems which is actually working. I've used Lofty. They recently passed like $1 million paid out in rental income, which is quite a large milestone. And they are naturally slightly centralized. They are a business. They do work with property management companies to help them run. But then they decentralize the ownership. So who actually can purchase a share in this house? It ultimately all lies with Lofty, but... 
by purchasing one of these tokens, you get access to appreciation, rental income, you get access to the governance of the property. If some repairs need to be done, you can help vote on the best course of action. And I think that is a much more practical and hands-on experience that more people can get a hold of where these NFT-based tokens or fractional investments can come into play. Yeah, for sure. And I, I believe there's one additional example that regarding NFTs that we can touch base. And after that, we can move on to the final question of the episode that we usually ask the majority of the guests. Yeah. yeah. It's the, it's the so, so this is a bit more of a, of an abstract concept and it's the idea of NFTs as an open database. And I've seen this idea presented a lot by there's someone on Twitter called Punk6529. They primarily talk a lot about NFTs and I would say like meta concepts. By meta concepts, they would often talk about how to spend your time wisely or things to consider in life in general. But they have a large focus on NFTs and also the metaverse. And they're running what is effectively a free digital university where anyone can enroll attend and also graduate. This isn't a formalized university. It's not a educational body. It's a project someone is running with the team in hopes to help educate people about NFTs and the applications and where growth could lead. The main quirk being here is that these NFTs are stored and tracked on the blockchain. So in their case, they're using Ethereum from my understanding. So when you actually enroll through their website, you'll be issued an NFT, which you can store in your wallet, which will actually be proof that you enrolled. You would, when you graduate, you would get another NFT, which would say that you graduated this course ran by whoever had, had ran this course. And I think this combines well with digital identities and zero knowledge proofs to have more control over what is being shared. Perhaps there's a website that you can only access if you've graduated from this course. So when you go to access it using zero knowledge proofs, you can prove that you attended the course without sharing any other information, such as what year, what course you did. Just the fact that you graduated is something which is really interesting. interesting. And the idea behind the blockchain is that it's open and permissionless. So there's no, re they're trying to push the idea that a lot more things can be stored on the blockchain than we think. And this is just one of them. And it's a very meta concept, which is, I would say it's represents a trend which will happen over a long period of time, but it's the foresight of this trend, which is quite interesting to see how it's going to develop over the next five to 10 years. I see. Yeah, it's, I guess the big assumption here is it has to rely on a largely adopted big public chain. Otherwise, if there is no such chain that provides this availability and it has large adoption, then the advantage of getting this information fast might be something that a centralized system could actually benefit from. Most of the cases right now that issue digital badges and things like that are largely centralized. So I guess the idea by itself is very interesting, but it th there is still, as is with many projects, an assumption on the availability of the public infrastructure that is largely adopted we'll see but of course it's not something that they need to worry about right this is the this is the goal for the consensuses and the l1 chains itself because that's basically their goal so everything else is builders building on top of them so we'll see how it happens over the next year but pretty interesting application 
And so proceed with the final question. It would be really great to, and once again, this question actually largely overlaps with the goal of your podcast, which is, or at least one of the goals, right? Which is the sharing your experience through this educational material for people with various backgrounds. So what advice would you generally give for software engineers who want to try their hands on blockchain development? And it doesn't necessarily need to be Algorand. Anything in regards to the Web3 space, that moving away from the Web2 model, basically dealing with a lot of backend centralization, a lot of databases. Yeah, yeah I think, you know, especially moving from Web2 to Web3, you won't know a lot of things especially if you've not had much exposure to blockchain in the past, or even if you've heard of it, you may not understand a lot of things. So the big advice I can say is to basically stay curious, ask questions, and don't be afraid of asking something stupid. You can Google things. Google's not going to tell anyone, right? Google doesn't care what you ask. So you can ask all sorts of questions. You might ask, what is a blockchain? What is a algorithm? An algorithm is something that not many people are familiar of, or you may ask, what is a smart contract? And all of these are valid questions to be asking, especially if you're starting your journey into web free. Staying curious is because if you, the moment you stop being curious and wanting to learn more is the moment your learning stops. And this isn't to say that you need to be curious every single day where you wake up, jump out of bed and start furiously Googling questions. It's normal to, or for me at least, to have spurts of motivation where I'm a lot more motivated to say, oh wow, I've seen something, let me look into it a lot more and I'll spend a number of hours doing so. But then for the following few days, I might not actually do anything at all. But during that time, it gives me time to reflect on what I read a few days prior. And then once that motivation comes back, I will again jump onto Google, spend a few hours, message people who I trust on Twitter and ask, how does this work? Can you explain this? And most people are happy to share the experience and knowledge. So being curious is definitely the biggest thing. The second one is a cliche, which I think is mostly popularized by Facebook, but it's move fast and break things. And this applies to software development in general. I do a lot of scripting and the fastest way to learn is actually just just try it and if it doesn't work figure out why it's not working and a lot of your fixes are going to be duct tape fixes which is normal i would say it's normal to have fixes which are which you make do with but then there, there comes a point where you look at what you've built and you can't understand what it is so you go back and rebuild it and then when you rebuild it you'll see how much you've learned how much you've developed an algorithm you may have written two three weeks ago compared to what you write now, may be much more efficient. You may be, have been making excessive calls. You may have been ex accessing variables you didn't need to or storing information you didn't need to. And if something doesn't work, that's fine. Things aren't meant to work the first time, especially in programming, nothing ever works the first time. And it's that wanting to fix what you have and wanting to know why things aren't working is what will actually propel you both in development and in your understanding. And I think even both of these points I've made about being curious and moving fast and trying new things applies to all aspects. Even though we're speaking about web free and blockchain, it, it can apply to anything that people want to learn. So yeah, I think those are probably my, my two biggest pieces of advice. Certainly great insights, Farzan. I know we went a little bit over time, so sorry for that, but otherwise... Once again, blockchain and beyond, I highly recommend checking this out. It's available on many 
streaming platforms through RSS. And once again, Farzan, thank you for coming. So awesome, Algo. It's thank been you. a so pleasure much. having you here and see you next time. Thanks. Bye-bye. Uh-huh.